Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Labor Day weekend. Hope you're getting some much-needed rest, I'm sure. Um, but we're glad you're here. This morning, we're going to close the book on King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, from a biblical perspective, it's a pretty short book. It's only four chapters long. But if we pull back the curtain of history, there's a lot more to learn. And what we learn from history is actually a very important context for what we see in the Bible as it relates to this story. For example, we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar was the second king of the Babylonian Empire. He reigned, amazingly, for 43 years, which was highly unusual during that time because people would be quick to take the place of a king by killing them so that they can take their place by killing them by... You kind of see how that goes, right? So 43 years is remarkable. He was the longest reigning king in the Babylonian Empire, and he was brilliant. He was a brilliant and somewhat barbaric uh, military strategist. He did some unprecedented things in his political rule, but he was probably most memorable from the mark that he left in the buildings that bear his name, literally. There are 49 buildings that have been discovered in archaeology that have bricks with the stamp on it that says, I am King Nebuchadnezzar. 49 buildings, bricks, each one of them stamped with that inscription. In addition to these buildings, we know there's at least 17 other religious temples that have been discovered. But of all the projects, and that's a lot to begin with, but of all the projects that he was known for, the city of Babylon was his most prized accomplishment, which is why he boasts in our passage. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Well, that majesty was actually put on display the moment you approached the city. This is called the Ishtar Gate. As you approach the city, this has actually been discovered. Okay? Ishtar was a, a pagan goddess at the time that they identified. And in that gate, as you walked up, it says this. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the pious prince appointed by the will of Marduk. Another false god. And then after you enter through this incredible gate, you walk you could see one of the seven wonders of the world. These are the hanging gardens of Babylon. Built by for one of Nebuchadnezzar's wives. It was the princess of Media who had grown homesick for the mountains where she grew up. So Nebuchadnezzar made his palace into a mountain. And he planted trees and, and, and plants that hung all around this building and invented this ingenious hydraulic system that pulled water from the Euphrates River to keep all these plants alive year-round. Incredible. I mean, this was a very gifted man, but he was also a very prideful man. One of the ancient inscriptions that has been discovered says this, it says, under her everlasting shadow, I gathered all men in peace. A reign of abundance, years of plenty, I caused to be in my land. Now, I want you to remember that quote 
because I want you to consider how this applies to what we will see revealed in his dream. Because if this is what he thought, and clearly he did, it makes sense then to understand why he dreamed what he did. So hold on to that thought. Nebuchadnezzar was a gifted man, but he was a man who was ruled by pride. And those who are ruled by pride will always, always reject the rule of God. After all, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the existence of God. Let's not forget that. Back in chapter 2, he said, He is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Last week, we know in the fiery furnace, he says, There is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. So Nebuchadnezzar, understand, did not deny the existence of God. But up until this point, he did deny the rule of God in his life. So for him and for all of us, pride is an act of rebellion. It's a barrier to experiencing God's grace and forgiveness. To be honest, it's a cancer. It's a cancer that causes spiritual blindness. And no one is immune. Not a person in this room is immune. So before we look at his word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we recognize, we confess that we are not immune to the cancerous disease of pride. Pride that prevents us from trusting you. Pride from that prevents us from, from allowing your truths to guide our lives because we are so inclined to go our own way and to do what is right in our own eyes. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth, that you would break through that boundary of pride so that we can see the truth of who you are and in seeing you in all your glory, bow and surrender to your rule in our life. Would you, by your grace and mercy, accomplish that miracle this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would turn to Daniel chapter 4, I'd love for you to read along with me as I begin in uh, verse 1. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. And how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. Now what we need to understand here is that this is like a preamble to an official state document. This is a royal decree that would have been circulated through all of the Babylonian empire. And it was written by the king himself based on his own personal experience. And if you look at what is written here and compare it to what has been discovered, it follows the same form and style of all his other inscriptions. So this is a personal account of how God miraculously intervened in his life. Now, of all that Daniel has written, I wonder, just personally, I wonder if this might not be his favorite chapter. And the reason I wonder that is because I want you to remember what we learned back when we looked at the prophet Jeremiah. 
Remember what he said in chapter 29, verse 7, when he told the people, he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And knowing Daniel, I am certain that he was faithful to keep this command. Day after day after day, he has been praying for the king and for the welfare of the city in which he lives. He knew that God was seeking to save those who were lost and he was praying for the heart of this prideful king to be broken. But this was a hard-hearted man who was ruled by pride. And it would take a very humbling experience for him to see the truth. So let's see what that looked like beginning in verse 4. Again, Nebuchadnezzar writing says this about his experience. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners came in and related, I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of a holy God. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. So what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar lived in comfort. You saw his palace, right? It was incredible. He had a care in the world. But here's the problem. He had no peace. He may have presented himself as a man of great success and accomplishment, but he was filled with insecurity. Someone once said it's a living death if someone is possessed by pride or ego or anger. This was certainly true for Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom may have been flourishing, but he was dying inside. We see that being lived out in his dreams. He was ruled by fear. He says that these dreams, these visions were fearful. They they were alarming. They exposed his vulnerability. They revealed his weaknesses. He was alarmed by the limits of his own understanding because he didn't know what they meant. And so he called the wise men, the magicians, the conjurers to come interpret the dream for him. This is what they were trained to do. But when he told them the dream, they had no answer. They couldn't tell him what it meant. Either that... Or I think maybe more likely, it was too risky to tell him what it meant. So he calls Daniel to do what the wise man could not or probably would not do. And, and if you're like me, you're asking, why do we have to do this again? Why didn't he just ask Daniel to begin with, right? We've, we've seen how this works. Well, I think it's very simple. It's because people who are ruled by pride don't want to know the truth. 
they will avoid the truth at all costs in order to protect their pride. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. The problem was he was overwhelmed by fear, and it was crushing him. So something had to change. So he describes this dream to Daniel. And in this dream, we see that there's a large tree, so large that you could see this tree extending way into the sky from just about anywhere else in the world. Its foliage and its fruit were abundant. It provided shelter and food for for every living creature. Now think back to that inscription and how he talked about how he was this shadow of protection and this provider for all that he had done. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Well, his dream is coming to life. The only problem is it's interrupted. It's interrupted by a divine messenger who walks up to this majestic tree and cuts it down, leaving only a stump with its roots intact. It took a a band of bronze and iron and wrapped it around that stump. It says that new grass grew all around the stump. And then it tells us that the the stump kind of uh, personifies it. So the stump becomes a man, but the man is not normal. He has lost his mind. He's acting like an animal. And he wandered around like a beast for a period of seven years. The messenger declared, this is the sentence of God, and it would prove that the Most High God rules over all the realm of humanity. Reminds me of a passage in Daniel 2, verse 20, where he tells us, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and epics. It is he who removes kings and establishes them. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Now look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. We learn that Daniel was appalled. He too, like Nebuchadnezzar, was alarmed as he understood the interpretation of this dream. This was not anything that he wanted to share with the king. In fact, he says that I would prefer to share the interpretation of this dream with your enemies, not with you as the king. Which tells me that Daniel, through his prayers, has developed a compassionate heart towards the king. And not because he was a super nice guy, because he wasn't. In many ways, he was barbaric and he was absolutely ruled by pride and arrogance. But here's what I believe to be true. Prayer has a way of changing our heart, even towards our enemies. It has the power to turn bitterness into compassion, and not because it changes the other person, but because it changes you when you pray for the other person. 
So, reluctantly, Daniel delivers the interpretation of the dream. Listen to what he says in verse 20. It says, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which the food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a messenger, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in its ground. But with a band of iron and bronze around it, a new grass in, on the, uh, of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place, that it would be with beasts of the field, and that you would be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree intact. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins. By doing righteousness from your, and from your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king twelve months later. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Let me pause there. Cutting down the tree is a symbol of judgment. But I want you to notice that it was a symbol of judgment, but not to complete destruction. Daniel made it clear the stump and its roots would be left intact. So the king would be judged, but there was room for repentance. Because I want you to notice something. Did you see how long of a period of time it was between the time in which Daniel interpreted the dream and the time in which that dream was fulfilled? If you look again at verse 29, it says... How long? Twelve months. A whole entire year. Daniel even pleads with him in our passage to, to repent of his sins, to acknowledge his pride, to submit, surrender and submit to the Most High God. Humble yourself or your rebellion will not go unpunished. But even this punishment was filled with purpose because left to himself, we need to understand that the, the king was walking down a path that leads to destruction. Left to himself, there's only one possible outcome. As Jeff told us, that angel of death would overcome him. And he would spend eternity separated from a living relationship with the Most High God. And he knew that. But in mercy, God is interrupting that path. He's calling him to repentance. And if he won't humble himself before this most high God, then God in a very severe mercy will do it for him. 
look at what happens beginning in verse 30. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great? As he stood on the palace, let me back up. Remember, he's walking on the palace. He's looking on all that he's created, and this is what he's saying. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Notice all the pronouns there, my, my, my. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, Sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from all mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. In other words, you didn't get there on your own. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until it had grown like his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, it's important to understand that Nebuchadnezzar was suffering from a mental illness. And it's a real mental illness. It's called lycanthropy. It's when a person no longer believes that they're human. It's a psychological delusion, a psychosis, where someone loses touch with all reality. But if you're honest with yourself and you look at Nebuchadnezzar, he was delusional long before he was mentally ill because he thought he was in control of everything. He was completely wrong. He stood on the roof of his palace pridefully admiring all of his accomplishments. He boasted in his wisdom, ignoring the wisdom of the one who interpreted his dreams. He acknowledged, he, he, he boasted in his own power, ignoring the power of the one who delivered Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace. His prideful heart had prevented him from seeing the truth that was right there in front of him. While his boastful words were still coming out of his mouth, he heard the voice from heaven. Just as quickly as Nebuchadnezzar had assumed his place on the throne, he was instantly removed. Because we read, right? It is he who establishes kings and he who removes them. So Nebuchadnezzar was removed from the palace 
to live in the wilderness. He survived on the land and lived like an animal. And over time, he looked like one too. His hair grew long and matted. His fingernails, unkept, became like claws. I remember watching a show. I've mentioned it before. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, it's called Alone, right? Where people, it's a, it's a reality show where people are put out into the wilderness alone to see who can last the longest. Which uh, What was interesting in watching it, probably the longest anyone lasted was about three months. Three months. And if you looked at who they were after three months, they did not look like the same person. Trust me. They were completely different. But here's what's interesting. Many of them didn't survive, not because they didn't have enough food or water. You know why they didn't survive? They were losing their mind. The emotional stress of being alone had so overwhelmed them, they said, I can't do this anymore, and they got out of the game. The problem was Nebuchadnezzar couldn't get out of the game. He had lost his mind and would live like that for seven long years. And honestly, I don't think he could have survived had God not miraculously provided and sustained him. And he would have never seen the light had God not graciously healed him. But as God promised, when that dream was fulfilled, he removed the veil over Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. His sanity returned, and now he could see the truth. But now that he's no longer blinded by pride, he still has a choice to make. He had been brought low by the Most High God, saved by a severe and loving mercy, but he still had a choice to make. He could go back to his old ways. He could continue to be ruled by pride. But instead, when you look at his word, you see that the king has repented of his sin. And he exalts the one who saved him. He acknowledges God's dominion. He's everlasting rule. He acknowledges that no one, including himself, could ever be compared to him. It reminds me of a passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 23. It says this, It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither. The storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Nebuchadnezzar knows there is no equal. And so he bows in submission to God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled as he bows in submission before God. So God graciously restores him to his throne. And I think everyone wants to know as they read this section, did he believe? Did he really believe? And there's a variety of opinions, but I'll give you mine. I think he did. I think he did. And the reason I do is because of his final words in our passage. He said, Speaking of God, his works are true, his ways are just, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Because we know up until 
point, he's been ruled by pride and has absolutely refused to repent. But here he not only admits his pride, he understands that his punishment has been just. He's restored by the grace of God and not because of anything that he deserved. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see that described, it's a picture of salvation. It's admitting our sin and the just punishment that we deserve. Because we've all willfully rebelled, just like Nebuchadnezzar. We've willfully chosen to go our own way. Now, we may acknowledge God exists. I mean, many of us grew up in the church, and so it's not hard at all for us to give all the right Bible answers. But we've not surrendered to His rule. We feel pretty good about navigating life on our own, doing what's right in our own eyes. But that's a path that leads to destruction. Because when we are ruled by pride, we live like beasts. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, We indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It goes on and says, We are by nature children of wrath. We have this insatiable appetite for sin. And it never, ever satisfies. And, and just like Nebuchadnezzar, God will judge our rebellion. I want you to listen to this New Testament version of the Old Testament story that we just read. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. It says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, look at this, to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's a depraved mind. And although they know the ordinances of God, they know the truth, they know He exists, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. God gave them over to a depraved mind, and they lived with beastly behavior. They knew all about God. They rejected his truth, refusing to be ruled by his authority. They wanted to do what is right in their eyes. And it's a path that leads to destruction. See, pride is at the heart of adultery and every other sexual sin. Pride is the source of division and disunity in the church. Hear me clearly, pride is a cancer. And it will consume your soul. And no one is immune. But here's the good news. Just like we see with Nebuchadnezzar, 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is so, so patient. He didn't want anyone to perish, including Nebuchadnezzar. But he wants all to come to repentance. He has revealed himself in the humility of his son to break through our prideful arrogance in order to set us free. 
Philippians 2.8 says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross as the only antidote to our sinful pride. Let me be clear. When we reject Jesus as our, as our Savior, we are rejecting him in prideful, sinful arrogance because we don't want to be ruled by anybody other than ourselves. But here's the truth. You cannot cling to the cross and still hold on to your sinful pride. Like Nebuchadnezzar, you've got to make a choice. You must abandon your right to rule your life and surrender your life to him. And here's something that's important for us who grew up in the church because we look at that and say, yeah, I did that. I remember the day and the time and when exactly that happened. But we forget the fact that it's not a one-time decision. We know that because of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. How often? Daily. Daily. And follow me. Surrender is a daily choice. It goes on and says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who saves it. For what is it a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. See, Jesus wants you to become everything he's created you to be. Not worse off than you are, but better than you've ever been. There is goodness built within the boundaries of God's design. We like to live outside of it. We're missing out on everything that he's provided within it. Living in the peace-filled assurance of his sovereign control, comforted by the unchanging truth of his promises, led by his spirit, guided by his word, living in the loving community of his people. That's how you flourish in a world that looks like Babylon. Knowing Jesus is our everlasting king, our beautiful savior, our faithful redeemer. Because in the end, and here's, here's key, in the end, we don't grow closer to God by trying harder. We grow closer by surrendering more. Day by day, surrendering to his righteous rule. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we believe in our heart of hearts that it leads us to the ultimate best. And if we were to choose to go our own way and do something different, it would only lead to destruction. So we have a choice. Do we choose to trust in him and walk in his way? Or in prideful arrogance, go our own. That's what we have to decide. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your gracious mercy. You want none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Lord, you recognize how stubborn we can be in our sinful rebellion. And so you put people in our lives to speak truth to us. You put us in places like people are right here this morning so that we can hear truth, be confronted with your word and allow it to speak to our hearts so that we too can know that you are the most high God and that surrendering to you, we experience all the blessings that are built within the boundaries of your design. And when you did that, you did it in absolute goodness. You want us to flourish 
no matter what's going on around us, because of what you are doing within us, by the work of your Holy Spirit, because of the grace and mercy that you have given to us. So Lord, may we trust you and surrender our lives to you day by day. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Let's not forget that, okay? No rival, no equal, nothing more powerful nor more beautiful than our Savior and our King. And let me just tell you, these are hard messages for me because it's some hard truth, isn't it? And sometimes I think when I give messages like this, there's the idea that, boy, he must have somebody in mind. (laughs) Some of you may feel like he has me in mind. I don't know. But let me just be honest with you. You know who I have in mind? Me. At the heart of every sinful decision I've ever made is pride. Arrogance. This is a message for me. But I hope that you too will take it to heart. Because I believe that as fellow human beings, you are challenged by the same struggle with pride. But I hope that we can come to this beautiful Savior and all his amazing grace and bow before him and worship as he deserves. There is no rival. There is no equal. And there is no one who desires more good for you. So when you bow before him, you receive all that goodness that he desires to give to you. So do that daily this week as you trust in him. Amen? Have a great day.